Welcome to the Shaping Champions podcast, a platform for discussion and exploration into what it takes to be a champion in life. We speak to athletes, entertainers, business people, and everyone in between about their journey and experiences, discovering the key ingredients needed to become successful at whatever it is you do. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Shaping Champions Podcast. Enjoy the show. Excited about today's guest, someone with vast experience in the worlds of professional sport, education, and working with young people. Gives me great pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Natasha Bernardi. How are you, Natasha? I'm good. Thank you guys for having me in. Absolute pleasure. It's, it's really great of you to take the time to come and speak to us. So thank you. So we'll kick things off, Natasha, by um, launching into the question that we ask all of our guests first time round, which is, what does being a champion mean to you? Being a champion for me is uh, learning to embrace life at its best and being able to uh, bouncing back up uh, from setbacks and making what you think is uh, your desire, your uh, way of life. Love that. Love that. A really sort of concise and succinct response. And, and, and perhaps, like, you know, not one that we'd, we'd usually get. I love that you sort of focus on um, you're the champion of your own destiny. You know, it's whatever you want your life to look like. That, that, that's fantastic. It's a, it seems like a good principle to live by. Yeah, to expand on that, I do understand that we are not all starting at the same point and uh, some people might, there is a lot of discussion and a lot of praise, oh, you can make your own way, you, if you work hard, you get it. And I don't think it's necessarily true. However, you can learn from that and maybe make your own tools, uh, not just to overcome the adversity, but empower our pe- other people to uh, not pass through that or to pass through that in a smoother way so they can move on even quicker and maybe go a little bit beyond the, what you are. So it depends how you want to look at it. But for me, is uh, being a champion doesn't necessarily being a champion like winning medals and being at the top of whatever sport or whatever you, you like people can see as a success, but being successful for yourself and looking back and having almost not regrets, but actually say, wow, what a long right I had and actually it was quite interesting love that yeah that's amazing and uh, do you want to just give us a, a bit of a flavor Natasha a bit of an insight for for both ourselves and our audience into your sort of career journey so far perhaps culminating in what what it is that you're doing right now sure if you have uh, two days no I'm joking um so <laughs> Um, so I, I will start um, in my teenage uh, time. So just because I work with teenagers and I think there is a key there. So I did uh, the equivalent. Uh, live, I was living in Italy. That's where I'm coming from. And you can guess from, probably from my accent. Um, and I was living, uh, I was doing my BTEC in business and sport, uh, just business actually. And uh, I was due to work or to, in accountancy or probably going for economics as university. But then I did a 
trip in Ireland uh, at the end of uh, my BTEC, uh, and uh, that's where everything changed, and I got into psychology, so I applied for a psychology degree. I got into uni in, my, uh, in a town close to mine, so I started to commute there. And uh, fast forward, I had an exchange program to Canada while I, my fourth year. So that's where I was like, wow, there is a world out of Italy and it's uh, much more diverse. That's where I live. This is quite interesting. So uh, after my experience in Canada, when I, I went back, I did my thesis there, discussed the thesis, fast forward a um, lot of years. Uh, I did my um I would say I did my uh, postgrad in hypnosis and uh, Arizona psychotherapy. And after that, I moved to Sweden because uh, during the years I found a passion for um, uh, sports psychology. And that was because I started also to referee um, as a football uh, men and women. And in Sweden, I did my master in sports psychologies with fast forward that uh, took me here in the UK where I started working in sport finally after some years in Italy as uh, uh, working in education as an uh, uh, educator. So more like a TA assistant or what is uh, um, sort of a mentor. And when I was here in the UK, I started to work as a youth worker and then my journey in coaching uh, and uh, in the last, in the past years, I worked at the NFL Academy as uh, um, uh, NFL Academy Education and Welfare uh, Liaison. And because they moved, unfortunately for me, to Loughborough, um, I wanted to stay closer to London. So I went back to my favorite sport, which is the football. And that's where I became uh, head of the academy, MK Dons. But lately I left and I joined Kinetic as the girls' academy manager because of my passion in football is for um, uh, women in football. So here I am. That is a very condensed way. Uh, um, during the journey, of course, I also um, did a little bit of consultancy in sports psychology, working with young athletes, Olympic athletes in skiing. Um, I work with uh, motorbike pilots, 125 uh, uh, yeah, motorbikes. And also I worked uh, quite consistently for over a year with uh, a roller skate, synchronized roller skating team, which were 40 athlete, girls uh, athletes, um, uh, around the uh, base in Italy, but competing around the world. Natasha, would it be fair to say, I, I think that's the greatest CV I've ever heard in my life. But, um, <laughs> but there's it, a lot about my age. Eh? There's a lot about my age. Oh, but let's ne not never, go there. Never, never. <laughs> but, um, would, it, would it be fair to say that um, you've had a lot of experience across different sporting fields and educational fields in these different countries. And I guess the reason I ask that is because how I, I'm, I'm intrigued to know what have you learned from the different approaches in the different countries you've been in to get to where you've got to now, because you could, you surely haven't picked in your current role now where you're, you're head of the girls Academy. That's a, a long journey you've been on. So what, kind of gems have you picked up along the way from the different countries you've been in? I think 
each country is unique, but each person is unique in a way. Um, I think the main thing is that all the young people have a lot of things in common and we sometimes focus too much on differences. Whereas actually differences make people unique and you need to underline that, but you need to, be, to remember your base that there are young people, so they are developing and there is, uh, and I always approach the young people as something to discover. It's a new word for me, as any person is a new word for me. So I'm always like, tell me something. I want to learn, I want to listen to you. Um, what is your word? I have to say I worked, yeah, it's true, I just did, I work in different reality, but also I work with international uh, people within different realities. So when I was working with the uh, motorbike pilots in Italy, and they were those were young people contracted by a motorbike um, company doing the one twenty five uh, one hundred twenty five cc rides, and those were from Germany mainly. Uh, from Holland, one was from Malaysia, living in Italy, and that is mm. for me that back in that was back in fifteen years ago. So that was uh, interesting for me to understand to understand the barriers and even my barriers because at the time I didn't spend time abroad much, if not mm. in and out. So I think there were there was a lot of learning for me also to know my internal bias or my knowledge and thinking as an Italian in, in Italy approaching somebody, uh, a professionist, a young p a professionist in my country who is not even speaking my language. So that mm. was one. When I moved to Sweden, I did my, during my, because uh, I did my master in sports science for psychology there. And part of the master is, uh, was uh, having a placement for three months. And I worked with, uh, funny enough, a young basketballer. So, uh, seven years old uh, uh, boys and girls uh, playing basketball as amatorial players. But this, I didn't know Swedish so well to interact with them uh, confidently and uh, having decent conversation with them. So we used a middle language for both, which was already a, a, another experience because I'm in a, in a country which is not my own one. I haven't lived there enough to know the culture inside out or to understand the culture inside out. And I'm speaking with the very young kids, because seven years old are young, in a language which both of us is not our natural language, so, or what is our first language. So that was another thing. And why it helped me there, I have to say, it's because I'm, a, I'm curious as a person. I have a curiosity as an attitude in life. So before getting there, I, the first year, I was very curious to know about what, what does school look like in Sweden? What do they do? Uh, what is available. And they learn a lot about what they do in Sweden. Like they have music class where everybody has an instrument uh, that the school provides to them and it's there. And if you don't want to play an instrument, you can do DJ. And if you don't want to do DJ, you can do vocals. If you don't want to do vocals, you can do mixing. So, and I was like amazed about all this because that is not a reality that is in my country. So I think you need to, and you need to go a little bit deeper in whenever you approach people that are, or environment that, that are not your own. And I have to say, even if you are in your what is called your own environment, so you think you're confident, this is, yeah, I know it. Actually, even there, you need to, dip, to, to dig a little bit more because what is your point of view is your point of view. And that necessarily is the point of view of the people that you are interacting with. 
Um, and then after Sweden, I think here it's uh, completely different. Working, and I have to say, working with the inner London, uh, inner London young people is very different than working with Milton Keynes young people, which is very different from uh, working with international players coming to London to try to strive and get into, um, into, for example, America for playing a sport or into other avenues. So um, my, my way to do all this, and I learn a lot during the journey, not just uh, from, and I think, I, and that's what I like to say all the time, book are your reference and theories are your references, but I learn more from the young people and from the staff that was with me in the journey than from all my amount of studies that I've done. It helped, don't take me wrong, but I think it helped more as an approach than knowledge per se, if it makes sense. You've, you've touched on some really interesting stuff there, Natasha. And what I wanted to pick out of that, or one of the things at least, was so working in Sweden, they regularly top the charts for like happiness, you know, every time a survey is done internationally. And I, I just wonder, I'm interested in what did you see in the country that you thought was making people happy or maybe even going back to how you introduced the idea of being a champion? You know, did you see that amongst that culture? So that is actually, uh, Jimmy, what uh, attracted me to go to Sweden, to be fair with you, at first. So um, not just because you see advertisers or, or everywhere, uh, especially as in Italy, we have this, I don't know, this paradise of the northern countries as the uh, place where, you know, everything is great and beautiful. Uh, but also I had a friend uh, at the time that, uh, well, he's still there, that was, uh, has been, uh, was working in Denmark and I had moved there back in uh, the early 20s uh, with an Erasmus program. And he was really uh, talking about Scandinavia, like it's the best place to be with a lot of opportunity, um, free education. So I got attracted. For, I, I followed that. And I have to say... It wasn't really my place. I mean, yes, it's very tight and peaceful. When I went there, at least I was able uh, to, to ride. I remember asking this very question to police. It's like, am I allowed to ride the bike in the middle of a park in the dark? And they asked me, unless you want, and they told me back, and uh, this is a true story. Unless you want to get killed in a road, I suggest you do that. I'm like, okay. And that's something that when I went back to, when I came here into London, I've been told absolutely don't go into park as soon as the, the sun goes down. So, you know, those are the difference that you get. Um, but that's to say, this is, a, it was a very peaceful place and uh, people are really, so if you are a Swede or if you speak Swedish, I think it's easier. If you have a family, I think it's probably easier than any other countries that I've been come across, even from more from conversation than from direct experience. I was, I was alone at the time, didn't have family. Uh, but I think you need really to learn the language and very well to be fully integrated. Otherwise, yes, the Swedish people uh, speak English, but they're more comfortable in speaking, uh, in speaking, uh, sorry, speaking, uh, they're speaking English, but they're more comfortable in speaking Swedish. So there are a lot of barriers um, in, if you are, not with someone and it's very hard to find friends that was my reality at the time 
So I decided to move to the UK when I was there because my level of Swedish was not high enough to get a profession uh, within sport, which I really wanted to. Uh, and uh, so, and I wasn't really, my kind of social life was not what I was able to see there. So that's why I, I moved. But generally talking, yes, it gets to me, it gets dark too early in the winter. It sounds crazy. Uh, but uh, I, I like a little bit of a more light in a way. But, I mean, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. if It's a little bit of a myth, I would say, to make the long story short than the reality. But that's my perception. Okay, interesting. So... So you end up coming to this country again, like a, you know, a big move and you, you eventually find yourself in the kind of spaces like Leighton Orient, MK Duns. What was it like as a female foreigner coming into those like male dominated spaces and that have been historically? And, you know, how did you find that process? Were there any struggles in terms of being respected or taken seriously? for instance? Well, I think I was a ref in Italy. <laughs> and that's how I would start this conversation. Uh, I was a ref in Italy in the male game. Um, so that taught me a lot, really, to, you know, not to, to, to come forward, to find my own corner at times. Um, so I was, let's say, prepared. Um, yes, I had my obstacles. Having an accent in some places doesn't help in a way. And I have to say, when I lived, when I started living here, one of the things that I thought about is going to elocution classes because it's like it, I felt in some uh, occasion that my accent was a barrier for me to access the jobs that I wanted. That I start, but then. It's funny, you know, sometimes you find people, I don't even know who it was, I think it was a random person, but that, uh, but I see, uh, take with me what this person says, like, oh, you know, having, uh, isn't that interesting? You, you say that, but you have an accent and that accent for me is, uh, has a story behind that. There is something different there. There is something that I would like to uncover. And they made me, and that was, what made me think is like, hold on a second, I have a treasure here and I'm trying to hide it. And uh, I, from there, this is another lesson that you learn randomly in life. Whenever I use that with a lot of young people as well, when they find something that they think is something that either they need to hide or pretend it is not there or try to make it like it's not as obvious. And it could be anything, it could be their carers, it could be that they, are, uh, they have a troubled life. Uh, could be that they uh, they just have one parent that works uh, that works to keep uh, their family together. I had a player that we we didn't even know it. And his his house was always shouting because he had unfortunately um, uh, his brother was severely autistic, so there was a lot of noise in the house. So you know, but I and that's why I'm always uh, that's what I said at the start. So uh, bouncing back up from setback what you consider could be a setback or you consider something that you are ashamed of or you don't want people to know I think actually that could be your diamond, that could be your strength that push you forward that could be why you're so different that could be your quality um, so that's uh, yes, th that's to say, sorry I was uh, going 
uh, and another road. That's to say, yes, I found barriers because, uh, but I think the most barriers are not just because I'm a woman, but I, I felt because I have an accent, because my name, mm. sometimes, how do you pronounce your name? Uh, how do you spell it? <laughs> um, uh, and then, yes, because uh, I am a woman, so I had, I had places where uh, I had to justify everything that I would say. Oh, because, you know, when I was working there, that worked. Or why are you doing that? Because when I did that, it worked. And I, I never, and something that it never happened to me in a, uh, before. But uh, I, that's why I think I learned a lot from the NFL Academy coaches, that's where, for example, no, it's a very alpha man-driven environment. And for example, none of the head coaches or the coaches staff never asked me explanation of whatever I was doing. It was working, that's off you go. You know, They were asking me probably explanation if it wasn't working, but I never had to justify myself prior doing things. Uh, whereas in other places that happen, it's like why why you want to do that? What what is that? Why are you? They need they needed to know where I was heading and why I was doing the things in the way that I thought I wanted to do before giving me the okay or before listening to me. Um, and that was I don't know if it was for just for the actor or if it was just for because it was a woman or a combination of the two. I think, yeah. But I think as as I have to say, uh, as a person with an accent, as an immigrant uh, and as a woman, sometimes you feel like you have to fight your own space, your own corner, and sometimes you need you you need to find to justify the money and why you're asking certain money, for example, or why you're asking. What, they they always judge you for that and not judge you for what you bring on the table. So yeah. Mm. Natasha, so the when you were a referee, how long ago was that, roughly speaking? So I was a ref for 12 years in Italy, so until I moved to Sweden. So I would say from uh, 2002 up until, two, no, 2001 up until 2011, something like that, I've done 12 seasons. And then I roughly be here in the UK as well, but I prefer coaching. Right. Interesting. So the reason I asked you that is you've been in football within Italy. You're now within football um, again. Well, not again, but you're within football in the UK. And I know it's different roles, but I think the question is still probably um, uh, apt or applicable. How much has the game changed in your mind in terms of female participation, female involvement. I know it was refereeing, um, what, 10 to 15 years ago to now being head of an academy. But what are some of the most recognisable changes that you've seen? And where do you think or feel things still need to go? Okay. I think it's important the location of where things are. Uh, when I was a ref in Italy, uh, so early 2000, I would say, refereeing for women in Italy was opened up in 1994. <laughs> so not mm. longer uh, prior me becoming a ref. Luckily, in that sense, I know in Italy things that are changed or we're looking for change. When I was leaving, uh, when, I when I moved to Sweden, things already were 
changing in a positive way. Uh, say it's, uh, it's still challenging to see women at the head of refereeing, but we're, maybe we're getting there, I'm not sure. Um, when I came here in the UK, the fact that I was able to get into a um, football coaching course in zero time for me was out of my mind. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't prepared. I had the mentality of a, a referee. So I was very skeptical and I didn't want to do it. I did it. I got my level one, but I never use it. I, I waited five years or four years after to use it. And I think already here there was more exploration of uh, women in sport. They were expanding the concept of women in sport. And, well, my passion is in football, so I can see that if I look back from when I came here, there was already discussion about women football uh, and uh, has like and it was a ball already rolling whereas in Italy I don't think uh, I think it it stopped somewhere in the in in the middle so we are far behind especially now so to I think the the, the, the football per se as a game has developed uh, and we can see it from what happened to the Serie A in the 90s up to what is the Premier League now like we are like the the the, the way Football is fast. The way the game, I think it developed, uh, and I like it more because it's very fast. But women football as well, and I think here in the UK at the moment is the best place, in my opinion, to see the growth of women in football. I think there has been work done since the um, the Olympics in twenty and uh, twenty twelve here in the uh, here in the UK, in not just. Uh, uh, for here in England, I would say, not just for women in football. And again, I think women in sport in general, the way uh, the way women in sport are talked about in the media is changing, has, has been developing in a positive way. Um, the investment at the lower level, grassroots, uh, and uh, the, rev the, the continuous review, especially in football, or what's happening with the WSL or the, or the WSL Championship, what about tier three, tier four? So I think there are, there, they are working, they are keep working, even though they are, have been successful, which I think it's a very good way because it's, not, it's when success arrives, that means that you have worked a lot before getting there and you don't want that to drop uh, immediately. You want to build up on it and uh, make, it, uh, uh, make it sustainable. Uh, and maybe go forward. And I think there is a lot of work to do. We were talking about inclusivity, and I think that is still lacking, but because accessibility was not there, I think it's, it's getting a little bit more accessible now, but still there are hurdles there. And I would like to see that all across the sport. Yes, football is one of the major sports in, here in England, and but I hope that other sports picks up um, and that goes, and I just hope that that goes viral, because I think we can hear because of our, of uh, the history. I think we uh, of, of sports here. I think we can teach other reality in a positive way and maybe cooperate. And I think there is that that is changing from back in the days. I think there is more a will of cooperating among nations. Instead of okay, I'm doing, I'm building my own castle here. Look at how big it is. Look how how nice it is. What about you? Now, I think with the women game, with the women's sport, 
there is more a mentality of like, how can we all make, how can we all elevate ourselves and make it sustainable for everyone? That's my vision. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Shaping Champions podcast. Thank you again for listening. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Shaping Champions Podcast. Please do subscribe to us at wherever you get your podcasts from. And if you'd like to discuss anything with us, make any suggestions or offer up any guests that you'd like us to interview, please do contact us on any of our social channels or email us on shapingchampions at outlook.com. Enjoy the rest of the show. Love that answer and almost pivoting to the fact that this is the Shaping Champions podcast and focusing on that word Shaping Champions or the phrase Shaping Champions, we've just seen a highly successful, globally consumed um, Women's World Cup. The England Lionesses, of course, got to a World Cup final off the back of the Euro win and so on and so forth. Um, and looking at it in the UK context, but you may want to talk about it in a more global way, is there any difference, and I hope you understand why I'm asking you this, is there any difference in how you approach shaping champions in the women's game versus how you approach shaping champions in the men's game? And the reason why I ask you that, in case you, you're thinking, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> it's because I'm thinking about the, the, those things that you've spoken about, the the structures, the accessibility, the in inclusivity. So does one have to approach the concept of shaping a champion slightly different given some of those barriers and hurdles? Or do you think it, it applies regardless? The same principles apply regardless? I think every person is different and that's how you shape a champion and not the champions. There is no uh, recipe for all. I don't think so, at least. I think we are, uh, as Emma Hayes, and I've, I, I take it from her, says that we are not mini men. We are just women <laughs> and different. But also, I think in our society as now, is that something uh, that we really need to keep in mind? There is not men and women. There is a lot of fluidity around and we can't take it out from the context. And that's when I say, yes, I think there is difference, but I wouldn't say difference, oh, because they are men or because they are women. I think it's a difference in the contextual part of where we are operating and with the person that we are operating. And as uh, a woman, and I, I define it myself as a woman, probably I'm more keen in uh, leaning with women uh, and because that I might have come through some of the others that they have come through. However, I need always to think that my context where I grew up and the, the age where I was there and uh, the country that I was and the way of thinking because I was speaking another language, it's different. So I think... Yes, uh, shaping champions is different, but I wouldn't say men for women. I would say in general. Um, and what you need to think is like, what do they want to be? Because my vision of a champion might not meet the vision of a champion of the person in front of me. And uh, I'd, I've never been, you know, a super uh, professional athlete. And I might understand what it takes from here, but I've never been there. 
So mm. is that, can I really, I really empathize until a certain point, but the work has, we, and that's why it's important to meet in the middle. I can help you out in take, in push you at their best or to help you out to be their best, but then there is work that you need to do. So there are things that don't change. Like I think it's, for me, for Shaping Champion, discipline is one of them. You need to uh, being able to self-regulate yourself and dedicate yourself and be consistent. And that is not something that I say that. It's just like if you speak to anyone, that's what they, that has been successful. That's what they say. It's like I had to learn how to discipline myself. I had to put the work in. I had to be regular in doing this. Um, and that is a challenge per se. And of course, and also you need to, to ground them and say, put all the work that if you put all the work or even a little bit more, you will get somewhere. But, you know, you need to also be prompted that it might not get you where you think it's going to get you, it might get you somewhere else, but you mm. will learn something for you. So there are things that are generic in a way, but there are things that are specific for the individual or the individuals you are working with. And the challenge on this side of the, uh, of the road and of them is how am I be able to help them to be the best of what they want to be and, uh, for, and then look and allow them to look back at me as like, actually, it was, uh, I learned something here. Mm. So being useful for them, for, this, for whatever is going to be their success. And success and champion, they become, can become immediately and disappear or they might become in 10 years, or they might never become as they thought, but they could be successful in another way. So how can I be in this big context? How can I be useful to, for them? So that's why I think always keep in mind that what is your vision of them as a champion, not necessarily is their vision, or not necessarily is the vision that they're going to be one day. Am I right in saying, Natasha, because I, I, I was doing some research on you. <laughs> so, wow. <laughs> am I you right really put in... me on the spot of Google now. <laughs> Thank you. Am, am I right in saying that um, you've done some work around sports psychology? Yes, right. that's my background. Yes. Right. Fantastic. Uh, right. So the reason I ask you that is I'm intrigued about, I can, I'm coming off the back of what you've been saying. I love what you're saying there about all of that around what is a champion and everybody's personal definition, et cetera. But I'm intrigued by the psychology to, and take that however you want to take it, the, the psychology and makeup of, and, and you spoke about discipline, you spoke about consistency. So would you say, and it's interesting because earlier today I was in a conversation with somebody I would consider a champion and they use those exact words as well. So, um, would you say that those are the, so ingredients that you've noticed across different across your career um or are there other aspects in terms of the psychological makeup of what you see in yeah let's say champions let's just use that phrase but take it however you want to take it yes i think there is there are a couple i would say um i think always being able always try to get better there is, so the people that have been successful are always working a little bit more, a little bit harder in the back, like whenever they have some quite almost obsessed in getting better, 100% better. So it's a little bit what Michael Jordan would say that he was keep 
scooping, you know, is the same. I've seen the athletes that are in the UK, in the US right now from the NFL Academy, they were the one that stayed longer in the gym. They were the one that when they, they did a little bit of extra homework to be able to be on the top. So they do everything that they do is a little bit extra. It's not instead of uh, finding shortcuts, they work harder, they work more. And another thing is like, love they love winning they are so competitive they are looking for a win all the time and they are competitive in training competitive in the game competitive for them everything is a competition and it's not a competition comp uh, and that because they are competing within themselves so that comes out of themselves they so they want to always prove that they deserve to be there and they deserve to be called up and that's why the, if uh, um, there are people that are a little bit lazy, they get really out of their mind because they don't like that. They want to they wanna win fair and they want everyone to put 100% so that when they're going to get picked is because they are the best in, doing, in being competitive. So I think there are all those two elements as well that I noticed in, in the one that are becoming champ become champion. Well, Mash stole my question there. So thanks a lot, Mash. Um, <laughs> but uh, I did, I did for a moment, I did think he was going to sort of, he'd uncovered like an uncomfortable truth about you, Natasha, when he started going on about Google and research. And But um, anyway, coming back to the psychological side of things, when you were discussing your experience as a referee in Italy, it just made me really curious about so you've stepped onto the pitch, um, governing a game with 22 adult males, I take it. And you've, you've moved countries several times. You've put yourselves in, in, you know, in what some would consider difficult positions, you know, being a female, male-dominated sport world, etc. cetera. Um, so, and with your background in psychology, I'm really intrigued as to what, are the kind of psychological techniques and strategies that you've used when you've been in those pretty high pressure situations, you know, where you've had to be on the ball, keep you calm, stay professional? It's funny that you ask because actually my passion for sports psychology started when I was a ref. Um, because when I was coming into the pitch, uh, I was mainly, I ref men games, non-league men games, but also I was mainly refing uh, futsal games. And when I was coming to the pitch, you know, to warm up, uh, it's, you get, I have to say, I was getting the look, but not because I'm particularly beautiful or, or whatever. It's because I was a woman in a jersey in an environment of men. So they were like, they were, I, I, I felt very uncomfortable at times. But then it's funny how that all resets when games start because you show what you're there for, which for me was like, I'm a ref. Just dependently on how I look like, whatever, I'm a ref. I'm, I have a jersey of a ref. I whistle, I'm a ref. So that's what my persona. But I, I had all these barriers in my head as well. It's like, oh my gosh, these guys, da, da, da. And, and that's why I found intriguing. I'm like, there is something that I don't understand. Um, how this is influencing performance as well. Why I'm nervous sometimes and why not? 
Um, so that's how I discovered um, sports psychology. I did my old reading at the time. And I tried to use imagery. I tried to, and that's why I got into the uh, route of hypnosis because I was able to self-hypnotize myself and being on my state and being calm and, and what, uh, leaving the game in my head before going and resting. So I was, I was focused and zoomed in. I was in my zone. I was listening to specific music, which I do it already even right now when I have, when I have games as a coach, I listen to certain my 80s music to pop myself up. Uh, but that is, those are my strategies, you know, and uh, I, I try to scribble, to, to write down notes, uh, which is uh, self-reflection or journaling, I call it as you want. Uh, but yeah, I use all those techniques and it helped me in uh, managing. The lucky part is for me is that, as I said, I'm curious as a nature. So for me, going abroad and try my, and try my luck, for me, is just like something that I like. I have been like doing it. And I, I have to refrain now myself because whenever I travel, I thought I, my first thing is like, oh, can I live here? Because that's the way I am. It's just simply something in my way of living, which is curiosity. Um, so, yeah, I think I was able to cope with all that because I tried to use tools and uh, grow my tools. As, you, as you've mentioned that word, um, I'll follow on from that. Curiosity. How important do you think that is in the journey of becoming a champion? It is uh, immensely important, and I think it's something as coaches that we try to not teach but provoke in our athletes, and it's something that I always try to provoke when I work with the young athlete out of the pitch as well. Uh, and it's also a way to overcome your barriers. When I was saying earlier about something that you consider something to, to hide because you're not, it doesn't seem you, you are proud of it, Actually, the curiosity to discover that it's not something that you need to hide. So flip things around. And I always say, try. It might, it might not work, but it might do. And it's something different that you have never done. And that is try to push for curiosity and not just leading away. Um, I think most of us, uh, because of the environment, because of, as we brought up, uh, because of many things, we are on a pathway and sometimes we get stuck because that's the only thing that we know. And that's where having a network, uh, speaking with other people that might not be linked to your pathway or that you might not really relate to them, might empower and actually open up other alternatives that might be useful for your journey or you can reshape for your journey. So that is my way. Just a final thing from, from me, Natasha. Because as you were talking about that, I'm just literally looking at your journey from start to finish. And again, I say how fascinating it is. But you're, like I say, you're now in the position as head of head of um, Girls Academy um, at Kinetic. <laughs> what, after all of your travels and all of your learning, <laughs> what is your philosophy? Now, now, hear me out. Hear me out. Because... I equate this to any job, right? Whenever you start something new anywhere, 
you're coming in with a set of ideas, a set of beliefs, whatever the context, right? And you're always refreshing. You're always wondering, right, this is the new context. But I'm just intrigued to know after your myriad of travels <laughs> and kind of professional developments and um, experiences, what is your kind of like underpinning philosophy? And now in the context of football coaching, at a, at, a, at a girls' academy. Don't give away all your secrets. People might be listening. They want to steal them. <laughs> but I'm intrigued at what your philosophy is all the same. I'm not sure if it's my philosophy or this will answer completely to your question. But for me, football is much more than kicking a ball and scoring goals. And that's what I would like uh, with like to bring to this uh, journey with the girls at, uh, at Kinetic is giving them all the possible opportunity that football can give. So it could be a ref, could be a coach, could be a player, could be a player in the US, could be a player somewhere else in Europe, could be a player in, the, in England, or maybe in some, some, something else, or could be part of a bigger journey for you and leading one of the a high table of a um, business or uh, or a federation. I'm not sure. That's what I w so my philosophy is. There is much more than football, and that's why sometimes you know I never play. As I said, I never play football professionally. Actually, I play football for a tier three because there were no other tiers after that in Italy. And uh, so I wear my gloves, and I was in a championship. I'm not telling you how we went, but I was there. But that's to say, they know and they can see that I'm not, let's say, skilled in football, but I coach football. So if it's possible for me, think about where they go and go. So my philosophy is uh, to pass the baton in a way and put in a better shape. And uh, I think I want to think that I want just to diversify what football offers here now here in England, but I, I, I want to go big internationally i want to think that football represents uh, could represent anyone that is passionate about football and everyone doesn't look in one way look in different way so that is my philosophy giving those girls the best opportunities to be part of the journey to be part of a bigger picture and implement football themselves love that really love that response and and yeah just your just your general general approach, um, yeah, your views, your vision. It's it's really refreshing, Natasha, to be honest. Um, just to hear someone talk so um, joyfully about the power of football and the possibilities and potential. One one thing that struck struck me when I was doing a little bit of research about yourself was that you wrote your master's thesis on um, the experiences of transgender people in sport is that right yeah i interview eight transgender people living in denmark and sweden and understanding their experience of physical activities and the barriers that go with it yeah i was just really fascinated by that and and interested in what made you sort of choose to write your thesis around that and what did you uh, what did you learn as a result of it? You know, uh, what did you from conclude from writing it? 
I think that's one of the positive, talking about positive of the, uh, Sweden. Uh, Sweden is a, a society which is very inclusive uh, in a way. And uh, before going to Sweden, as I said about my journey in uh, refereeing, I thought that, you know, why am I perceived differently? I'm, I'm just a ref here. Why are they looking at how I look like? Why are they... Uh, insulting me, saying, "Oh, you you look like rubbish. Why are you refereeing?" And I'm like, I, I was. There were things that just didn't settle with me in the environment I was. And then I went to Sweden. I found out that actually I was right. There were a lot of uh, uh, there was uh, heterosexism, there was sexism, or all the isms that they were. And I was just not aware that they were called that way, but they exist. And uh, during that time. I um, I was just chatting around with people, and I found out that all of us had barriers in uh, uh, in activity, in going to the gym, and uh, in uh, exercising. That exercising was not one uh, was not for all. So I got I got into into this conversation, and and I found out well why I don't do something about. Uh, physical activities and uh, that involves gender studies as well. So my thesis is a, a co-thesis in sports psychology and gender study actually. So I had the two uh, different um, um, uh, supervisors. And what I learned, is, which I wasn't aware, is uh, the power of interviewing. So all uh, so the power of the language, the power of interviewing. So all my interviews were done on site with them reviewing the answers once given to make sure that, you know, if there was something that they uh, believe needed to change or that was not the language that they wanted them to be portrayed, they were able to do that. Uh, I learned the barriers of clothes. I didn't, I never thought that, you know, clothes can be limiting. So, um, and it's not just uh, in terms of, well, what if I don't define myself as a man or a woman? What am I supposed to wear in a gym? Like, there is no clothes that suit me. And if I'm in transition, the women to men, the, 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 women, clothes, the women clothes, I don't want them. But the men clothes, I don't look okay. And the fact that some of them were wearing um, stripes to, because they were not uncomfortable with showing their breasts. Uh, the fact that some had uh, abused in... Um, in, in the swimming pool because they got the, the top side removed so they had the scars and uh, they got abused because the scars are visible. All these things that we don't think about, to be fair, uh, and uh, or we don't think that it's possible and how unsafe some places are because, uh, for example, the episode that was, and it's in my thesis, the episode that I was telling you about the uh, swimming pool, uh, these two people went to the staff saying, hey, we are we are enjoying our swim, but we had some people abusing us and just calling us names and staff was unprepared because they didn't know what to do. It's like, oh, you can leave if you want. But then again, why should I leave that I'm just having a swim when they are just abusing me because they don't like the way I look like or it makes uncomfortable the way I look like. Um, and that goes extended to, to can be extended in, in many ways and many other people. I just focus on the reality of these uh, uh, people. But another fascinating thing that I found is at the time, so my thesis the dated 2012, there were very few uh, studies about that topic. 
And it was very hard to convince Jim to put an ad to recruit participants. So the way I was able to recruit participants was through Facebook at the time and uh, through some uh, LGBTQ plus organization. And I was able just to, uh, to get eight because gyms weren't allowing me to put ads about a study, even though the ad was having all the criteria with uh, my supervisor emails and stuff like that. Wow, Re- really eye-opening stuff. And I mean, just following in the, 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 the theme and, and general nature of this discussion, really, it's just been absolutely fascinating. Uh, I'm sure Mash will agree. Um, but just to, just to finish off, I mean, we, we usually ask our guests as a final question about the qualities needed to become a champion at whatever it is you do. But I feel like we've already kind of touched on that. So my, my final one for you, Natasha, would be, is there any kind of message, final thought that you'd want to leave with, particularly any female listeners that we might have to the podcast who are aspiring for a career in sport? I think, well, maybe already said several times, but trust yourself and trust uh, your way. There is no one way to become a champion. There are several ways. And find people that are in your corner all the time and they where to lean when you need, but also they believe in you. And sometimes they believe in you more than you believe in, in yourself. Um, that, those are my, my two ones. I think that's super apt. Um, <laughs> we were talking. We were talking in. I'm going to call it the green room before we press record on this. And um, I, I spoke about kind of what I'd been doing earlier in the day. And I think when I think about all academy and, and you're working with the academy, so I'm going to keep in that context. When I think about academy sports and children, uh, young people involved in an academy. Um, I do think that that's key, what you say there, Natasha, that it's stressed to them that there is no one way. And I think that, and, and, and in fact, I think the narrative of studying one champion can be quite dangerous because you can get into that kind of belief that this is how that one person did it. So that is the way um, to, 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 to become successful that is the way to 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 be a champion so it's, it's been as jimmy says it's been really refreshing to hear you kind of talk about the the kind of different methods different avenues different approaches there is no one size that fits all um and i think and i think it's been good to debunk the kind of notion that this is the best way so i i, I just want to thank you on both on behalf of both myself and jimmy and the shaping champions audience <laughs> for your for your education um on on this particular episode and i do call it an education because i i feel like you've taken us literally around the world <laughs> in, terms, in terms of in terms of imparting your knowledge about what you've learned and and the kind of uh key lessons and how to apply that um uh, on a journey not just your own but other people so um Thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming on the Shaping Champions podcast. It's been literally a, a, an eye-opening one. And um, yeah, I'm, even though you've given us your last words, that was what's your last words for the people. But I will just give you a last sign-off words in general. Thank you so much for coming on, Natasha. And we'll 
give you the final, final say on the podcast. <laughs> Guys, it's been a great pleasure. Um, and I really hope this is useful. Uh, that's why I like to be in podcasts, just to hope that the message could be useful to even just one person. So, and thanks a lot for the work that you're doing. Um, I know you had an ama amazing guest before me. You will have amazing guest after me. And it has been always a pleasure to listen to your conversation. Thank you so much, Natasha. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been Marshall St. Patrick Hewitt. I've been with Jimmy Davis. I was about to hand you, Jimmy, and say, you've been Jimmy Davis. <laughs> I've been with Jimmy Davis. This has been the Shaping Champions podcast. Please continue to like, share, review, subscribe. You know all that, all the jazz. Look at the description below to find out where you can follow Natasha and um, all the various different necessary links that you need. You can follow us on all the platforms. And we look forward to sitting down with you next time.